Um, so if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Romans. Um, it's been a week since we were in the Roman study. We took a week off uh, for our Halloween party last week. Um, and before that, we had Josh and Dan uh, collectively over two weeks take us through chapter 6. And now we're at a kind of a turning point uh, in the book of Romans. Um, Paul is going to start doing some shifting from his main focus for the first six chapters about the law and how there is justification uh, that predates the law and it's through faith and faith alone. That's kind of what we've been talking about uh, for the last few months in our series that we've titled Justified. Now, Romans chapter 7, I'm going to have you turn there. We're going to read it together uh, and then we're going to break it down um, because there's some really cool things I think to be said here. Uh, Paul uses some really interesting examples. Um, But yeah, without further ado, let's read. It says this, uh, picking up in verse 1. Of chapter 7, it says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives and she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But... If her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no longer an adulteress, though she may marry another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Verse 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking the occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by this it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me. And what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that is exactly what I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer good, I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells uh, for to will the present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do. Uh, That is what I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. I find them 
uh, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warning against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much. Uh, for your word, uh, God, and we pray that tonight as we just spend these next few moments looking at your word, uh, God, I pray that you would speak to us, uh, God, that there would be freedom, uh, that there would be liberty, um, God, that we would have a greater understanding uh, of even your commandments uh, and what you have done for us through your son. Uh, so God, I just pray that tonight, uh, these would not be my words, but God, that you would speak through, uh, God, and that your perfect word would ring true. So God, we thank you and we praise you in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. 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 So Paul kind of went in, uh, in this chapter. He really goes in on himself. Uh, he goes in on the Jews. He goes in on the law. Uh, and he really paints uh, a really beautiful picture as we begin to dissect it. And so hopefully over the next uh, 40 minutes or so, we'll dissect this uh, and we'll have a greater understanding uh, of the law, as in the Jewish law. Uh, we'll have a greater understanding of uh, the law, the spiritual law that comes from God uh, and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But first... Uh, let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says this, uh, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who are in the law, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. Remember, Paul, most of Paul's ministry, when he's establishing a church in a city, uh, he's not doing it to Gentiles. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, and he goes and he makes many Gentile converts. But what does he do in every single city that he goes to? He goes, he finds the synagogue, and he teaches in the synagogue, and he reasons with those who were the leaders in the synagogue. Is a synagogue a Gentile thing or a Jewish thing? It's a Jewish thing. Uh, when you have a city, and Jews are in the city, uh, it is according to Jewish customs and tradition. If there are ten Jewish men in a city, they form a synagogue. So you have some cities that have hundreds of synagogues because you have thousands of of Jews, uh, and, and, and so these synagogues get formed, and Paul goes and he establishes his Christian faith and his Christian doctrine in these synagogues, and then moves from there. Dan's making me laugh. This is really good. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting behind Levi, he's just so vulnerable right now, and I couldn't help it. I was trying not to. Every time Dan speaks, uh, every time Dan speaks, he busts out and just to an awesome laugh session. Uh, in the first five minutes of his sermon. And, and, and I was like, man, I just love it when Dan preaches because there's just so much joy up front and he loses it. And I was like, man, I just don't laugh enough. And now Dan's making me laugh. So, uh, Dan, thanks, brother. I appreciate it. So so what, what Paul is doing here is, is he's saying, hey, I'm going to speak to people who understand the law because these are the people who normally are the establishing foundations of the church. Uh, and, and he goes on to say a very keen line, and you can underline this in your Bible, you can highlight this in your Bible, but he says this in verse 1, he says, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. The law has dominion over man as long as he lives. I want you to remember that verse because that verse is going to come uh, into importance in just a second. Remember this also. He was talking about 
Abraham and how Abraham was saved through faith and Abraham was before the law, um, but his faith superseded the law. Well, all the things of the law were still inexistent at that time. It's just that it wasn't written down and formalized as the law, but it was kind of this law that was written on his heart. And we're going to break that down in just a little bit. But what happens in verse 2, uh, verse 2 through uh, about verse 6, uh, Paul uses a very interesting analogy. Okay, uh, he, he, he pulls very interestingly out of the law, this portion uh, of the law that can cause some questions, uh, might make some people frustrated, uh, can ruffle feathers, all sorts of things. But Paul says this, for a woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So in the Jewish law, there was no provision for a woman to divorce her husband. If a wife married a man, she was bound to that man for life. Now, the husband, there's one or two reasons the husband can divorce, but they blew that out of proportion, and men were divorcing their wives quite a bit back in the day. Um, but man could divorce his wife, but wife could never divorce her husband. Uh, and so one thing that can be drawn real quickly, especially in the 21st century today, uh, that sounds extremely chauvinistic. That sounds extremely uh, male-dominated, suppressive of women. Um, and many uh, women's right activists, many feminist movements point this very portion of Scripture out as a reason that Christianity is old, it's archaic, it doesn't mean anything, it suppresses women, it's not a good thing to follow. Um just a side note on that. You can do the homework. You can do the research. You can go figure it out on your own. Um, but I just dare you to take a look at everywhere in the world where Christianity has been and has been brought versus everywhere Christianity is currently not flourishing or has not been brought yet. And you'll find a very striking dichotomy and juxtaposition. The places where Christianity is and the cultures that Christianity has been brought to, those are the cultures where women have been liberated, where uh, women have found freedom. Uh, they are no longer trapped by the cultural uh, rules and regulations that their cultures had imposed on them. Uh, whereas the places where Christianity is not yet or is, but is in a very small place, women are extremely, extremely oppressed. Um, so the message of the gospel, Jesus's gospel, uh, when, when, when we look at Jesus's ministry, even in the book of John, uh, Jesus is going and he's setting women free. We see him setting men free here and there, but Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to do something so culturally not relevant. I'm going to go and I'm going to speak to the women. I'm going to have women as disciples, which that was never a thing that was happening before Jesus. And Jesus really sets the stage of, hey, we are equals. There's not men and women. There's not women and men. We are all person. Paul says there's uh, no distinction. Man and woman, Jew and Gentile, uh, there is no distinction. We are equal. And so Paul goes into this and he uses this uh, as, as something that's very interesting because to the culture that Paul was writing to, Rome, you guys ready to hear some craziness about Rome? Rome was the most civilized uh, civilization at its time, uh, and this is what Roman men were encouraged. 
Roman men were encouraged to have three women in their lives. Not just their wife, but three women. Uh, and these are the three women that they were encouraged to have in their life. They were encouraged to have a wife who would be their legal wife, uh, only one wife, but that wife would bear children for him, would give him an heir to, to his family name. Uh, then they were to have the woman who they would take out in public because you wouldn't want to take your wife out in public because she's just there for childbearing. Uh, but you have your woman that you take out in public and you have dinner with. You take her to the gladiatorial games. She's kind of like your side chick, um, but she doesn't have any benefits. She's just friend. Uh, who looks good, and all your buddies are like, oh, man, he's got a good-looking wife. But she is strictly there as a relational uh, affair or, 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 or this personal um, personality affair. Not There's no intimacy or anything. That's the third one. Uh, every Roman and Greek man is encouraged not only to have his person he takes out in public, his like trophy figure, uh, his wife who bears him children, but they're all encouraged to have... Um, their fling, their affair, uh, this woman on the side who they can uh, do whatever they want with because uh, that's what they're all down for. And so this is what Roman men are encouraged to have. And Paul's like, no, 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 we're not. And he's going to address that in just a few chapters, uh, sexuality and all these things. Uh, but Paul is speaking uh, in in, in a context when it comes to uh, husbands and wives and the law and how that uh, all, all has this orchestrated together. Uh, and he touches on something that's very touchy. And this is what he goes on to say. He says, but when the husband dies, she is released from the law. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, he will be or she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no longer an adulteress, though she may marry another man. Paul is setting up this marriage, and the marriage, the way Paul is going to break it apart, it may seem as though the church is, is um, going to be the wife, and the husband is going to be the law, and that the law is going to die. But in all reality, Paul tells us throughout the rest of this chapter, the law never dies. So we have the law that is this opposing uh, or, or imposing husband, and we have the church being the bride. And legally, the bride cannot divorce from the law. And so Paul puts up this, this, this big thing like, we have a problem. Because we're living outside of the law. The law is not done away with, but we're living outside the law. Does that make the church an adulterous bride to the law? And Paul's readers of this initially would have been like, because they understood the context. They were under this law. They would have been like, oh gosh, this is bad news. Do we maybe need to revert back to Judaism and be strict in our following of the law? which would be so contrary to anything Paul had ever taught, because Paul is always, hey, we are now no longer trapped to that. Let's continue on in this. And so then Paul goes on to say, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead. What Paul doesn't go into is that when the wife dies, the husband now has no legal control over the wife because she no longer exists. And what Paul is saying, you being the wife of the law, you died. So now the law has no jurisdiction over you whatsoever. Mm -hmm. He says, you were once dead, 
But now you have been raised anew with Christ. You are no longer the same person that you once were because you were crucified with Christ on the cross. So now you are a completely new wife or available person on the market. And you're going to get married to Christ. And that is where the church, the, the, the church was once dead and trapped to the things of the law because they were in a marriage with the law. But when we died, we die with Christ, as verse 4 tells us. We are raised anew. We are a new person. And we are now betrothed to Christ, the church, the bride of Christ. And here's the cool part. When Jesus calls us home and when all is said and done and, and, and the church is all caught up to heaven to be with the Lord, we're going to enter the marriage uh, supper of the Lamb, which we are literally the bride of Christ, and we get a party hearty with Jesus and all the patriarchs in heaven, and it's going to be awesome. And Paul is beginning to paint this picture that there is freedom from our previous husband because now our husband is a kinsman redeemer, and his name is Jesus. And we don't have time to go into all the kinsman redeemer and all that stuff. If you want to do it on your own, go read the book of Ruth. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous when you look at a Leverite marriage and all these kind of things. It's so crazy. Okay, verse 5 says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were once held by, so that we should serve in the newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. So what Paul says is we died to our old self. We have been raised anew in Christ, and now we can live in newness through the Spirit. The Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Power, the bestowing of His Spirit upon us. His Spirit has taken up residence inside of us, and now we can live our lives by the Spirit, and He pours out His Spirit upon us and gives us power, gives us gifts, so that we can do things for the Lord, for the kingdom, in the Spirit, and not be held by the letter of the law. Aren't you guys stoked that on Saturday you can actually go outside and do things? Saturday is the Sabbath, and according to the law, you're not allowed to do anything on the Sabbath. I uh, in college, uh, my senior project it was it was actually a lot of fun. Uh, I worked at a Jewish retirement center. It was so cool. And not only did I work in the Jewish Retirement Center, I worked in the Alzheimer's wing of this Jewish Retirement Center. And so I'm up there with these people. And this one dude, super cool dude, I introduced myself to him every single time. And I heard some of the same stories every single week. But the best part about it was the things that he forgot were kind of like the simple, like the nominal things that after a month I'd forget, you know. But the things that he remembered was his heritage and the law by which he had lived. And so he knew the Sabbath. And when and when Friday night rolled around, oh, got to button everything up, make sure we turn off all the appliances because here's, this is crazy, it is. When we entered into the Industrial Revolution, they continued to edit the law to fit the technology of the time. Um, one of my friends nannies for a Jewish family uh, and she nannies on the Friday nights, and on the Friday nights, uh, they have to unplug the microwave. They have to turn off the switch breakers uh, so that they can't accidentally flip a light on because that's doing work. So they have to pre-make the meals Thursday and Friday day so that they are able to be eaten, but they're not meals that you can refrigerate because you have to turn the refrigerator off. So you have to make sure you eat all your 
food that could be perished, you, you, you prepare it, and then it's got to be something that you can uh, store on the counter. It's like ridiculous. That's not exactly how the law was written for Moses, but the Jews over time began to add to it. Uh, they began to add to it so much that by the time Jesus' day had rolled around, they had laws and like little amendments to the laws. That on the Sabbath, if you wanted to, you could tie a piece of string to the hem of your garment, tie the string to your bedpost, so then you could actually walk outside because technically you're still inside and you could do work, but technically you're not doing work because you're still in bed. Right. Jesus says, come on, man. God didn't create the Sabbath for you. He created it for himself. And he, Jesus says, what man knowing that his horse has fallen down and is dying in a ravine on the Sabbath? He's not going to just like let it die. He's going to go do it. That's just man thing. These are the people who said, Jesus, you're healing on the Sabbath. Why are you healing on the Sabbath? Jesus is like, because I'm going to heal on the Sabbath. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. Jesus is our Sabbath day's rest. As believers, we can have our Sabbath day's rest in Christ. Here's the cool thing. He didn't abolish the law. So, hey, take a Sabbath. Don't, like, maybe turn off all your appliances. You don't have to do that. But take rest. If God rested, I think we can rest a little bit, you know? Uh, and as we're going to see, Paul says, no. Do we abolish the law? Absolutely not. So this is what he says. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because he uses this oppressive husband as the law and then this redeeming husband, Jesus, as this, as this dichotomy. And then he says, well, is the law sin? And Paul, using his bait and then switch, he, he asked the question that everybody's like, yeah, the law is sin. He's like, certainly not. Let me tell you why. <laughs> I mean, I, I could just imagine Paul like orating this like in a forum. It would be like he could get the whole crowd to be like, yeah, sinful law. And then he's like, nah, just joking. This is why. And this is why he breaks it down. It's so cool because he says, for if it were not the law, if, if there was no law, I wouldn't have known that I was sinning. Yeah. He says, I wasn't sinning before the law revealed to me that I was sinning. Paul said, man, I had a good life. I was living. I was doing everything. It was a good time. I had no care about anything until I learned the law. And then I learned that pretty much every single action that I did, I was breaking the law. And I was a sinful person. He's going to go on to tell us later that the law is the tutor that leads us to Christ. But it's through Christ and Jesus that we're justified, not through the law, but that's another for another time. Um, Paul says that the law is what revealed to him that he was a sinful man. He goes on to then say just a little bit later on, he says, now the law, I understood the law carnally because I'm a carnal man. So when the law says don't commit adultery, I was never going to commit adultery. When the law said don't murder, I was never going to murder. When the law said don't steal, I'm not going to be a thief. When the law said uh, don't do this or don't do that, I knew that I was not going to do that. He goes on to say that I kept the law better than anyone. If the law could save, I'm a saved man. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees through and through. I didn't realize I was a sinner. The law showed me that I was a sinner. So I did everything in my life to make myself not a sinner. He goes, but then the more I looked at the law the more I realized that the law is spiritual. The law is not carnal. And then he really, 
Paul's own confession is when I realized that the law was spiritual, I found out that I am the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. So Paul, Pharisee of Pharisee, best Jew on the planet, doing it, fulfilling the law, realizes that mentally he was the worst of the worst. Here's another example of something like that. How many of you guys remember Isaiah? Right? So Isaiah, great prophet, one of the greatest prophets of all of Judaism. If you were to flip to Isaiah, we don't have time to do a character study on Isaiah or verse-by-verse study through the book of Isaiah. We'd be here a long time. But I can just tell you this, and you can go back, check me if you want. The first five chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah is saying, Woe to the Egyptians because they do this. Woe to the Babylonians because they do this. Woe to the Assyrians. Woe to the Ammonites. Woe to the Edomites. Woe to the Moabites. And he just starts name-dropping all the enemies of Israel. And he's just like, you do these evil works. You do these evil works. Woe to the kings of Judah. because they like. And he just starts going in on everyone. He's just like, the Lord says this. The Lord says this. He's going to destroy you. He's going to destroy you. Boom, 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 boom. And then we get to chapter 6. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. Isaiah, in the spirit, is out of earth. He's in the throne room of God. And he sees the perfection of God's kingdom. And then it goes through the whole thing. Hey, we're looking across the world. Where is someone who's going to go? Just spread the word for us. Isaiah says, send me, I'll go. But then right after that, he says, you need to cleanse me. Because I am a man of unclean lips. He's been the mouthpiece of God for the first five chapters. Saying, that's bad. That's bad. That's sin. That's deserving of punishment. And he's just going in. But then he gets and he sees the spiritual perfection of God. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips. This does not mean that Isaiah was like swearing, doing all that. He realized the frailty of his humanity. He realized that he is a sinful person. And he was in need of God's forgiveness, in need of God's cleansing. And you want to know how he ends it? He says, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Woe to the Egyptians. Woe to the, woe to the, just laying it out there. Like, we are perfect. And then he realizes, no, we're not. Woe is me. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the very thing that Paul's saying here. I, I, I was doing it. I was good. But then I realized. And so often Christians can get sucked into the trap of self-righteousness. A lot of times we don't even realize we're there. Especially for those who maybe grew up in the church or or, or who are serving in the church nonstop. We get into this, I am the hero of the world. Like, I'm doing it. I've been doing it. Like, I carried my Bible in high school. No one else did. And we begin to think of ourselves in this way of somehow we are exempt from the spiritual requirements of God. Because we've done the spiritual good things that were enough or that on the outside make us more spiritual than other people. But we have to realize just as there's no difference between man and woman in levels of importance, there's no distinction between pious and filthy. We're all people. And if we were really all unpack the most dirty parts of our brain... We all look the same. Mm-hmm. We're all fallen. The only thing that separates us from them 
has nothing to do with us. And, and so that's why I can stand up here and say what separates us and them, which, which sounds kind of condemning, it's not. There's nothing that we can do to make us the us and them the them. It's only what Christ has done in us when we die to ourselves, when we are crucified with Christ, and he raises us up. Not we raise ourselves up, but he raises us up, and he is the one who justifies us. We don't justify ourselves by our works. We are justified by faith in Christ. So the law, as good as the law is, and as good as the law is at showing us that we're sinful, the law still can't save us. If we kept the law to a T, Jesus says, great job, great job kept the law to a T. You remember how it says of old that you should not commit adultery. You've done good. You haven't committed adultery. But I tell you this. If you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. Oh, you've heard it said of old that you shall not commit murder. But I tell you this. If you've had hatred in your heart towards a brother or a sister, you've committed murder in your heart. What Jesus does is he... I heard one pastor put it this way. I think it's one of my favorite lines. Uh, but, but this pastor says, Jesus is the great leveler. He levels the playing field. He takes the best of the best, the worst of the worst, and every varying level in between, and he wipes it clean. And he says, here is the baseline. And guess what? None of you are getting above it in and of yourself. And you're not really going to get any lower because y'all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short. But see, that's that's the most amazing thing about Jesus. That's the most amazing thing about the God of the Bible. Is he levels it all and he says, you are all here. Boom. You've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what does he do? He doesn't just stay up on the mountaintop looking down at us, being like, yeah, y'all sinned. Hope hope that law I gave you really tells you how bad you are. Hope you can do better next time. I'll see you on Tuesday. No, no, no. God says, I'm going to come, I'm going to meet you right where you're at. The thing that distinguishes Christianity from any other religion in the entire world, all the other gods... They sit up on their ivory tower and they condemn their followers and say, oh, well, you didn't do this. Oh, you didn't do that. You better live right. You better have good works. And maybe someday you'll be able to climb up to the top of the tower with me. But what God says, what Jehovah God, the God of the Bible says, he says, all right, I know you're never getting up here. That's really a bummer. But I really love you. So how about I take a step off my throne how about I put on the clothes of a man, slide, I imagine God doesn't have to climb down his mountain, he just like hops on a slide and he slides down, right? And like, boom, God's here, and he's man. And he says, I'm going to meet you where you're at, and he doesn't just walk with us. He sees us in the dirt, and what does he do? He just go look at John, John chapter 8, it says, and he stoops down. And he meets the woman where she's at. The woman who was caught in adultery. He meets her right there on the ground. He gets in the dirt with her. 
And then he says, I don't condemn you. Go sin no more. The law shows you that you're a sinner. But I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. The law reveals to each of us that we are sinners. But Jesus says, yeah, you were a sinner. But I don't condemn you anymore. Go, sin no more. Go, sin no more. And so Paul, we even see this in in here. What Paul says in verse 15, he says, I still sin. He says, the thing that I wish the most not to do is the very same thing that I do. And he goes on to do this thing. If I do the thing that I will to do, but then it's not me, it's God through me. And if I do the thing that I don't will to do, it's definitely me because I fail every time. And I I try and I try and I try, but I always fail. I try and I try and I try, but I always fail. What is going to happen? And then he gets into this. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Have you ever taken a look in the mirror and said, oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched woman that I am. When we look at ourselves through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of the law, we cannot help but look at ourselves and realize we fall so short. The Bible tells us that even our most righteous acts. Now, I've seen some of you guys before. I've walked the streets of Seattle with some of you guys. I've seen some pretty righteous acts. Righteous. Like, I've seen some pretty stinking cool things. There's things that you guys do that I don't see. That maybe God is the only one that sees, but you know, man, that was a righteous act. I I heard God tell me to go talk to that person on the side of the freeway, so I did. And I shared the gospel with them. Even our most righteous acts are but filthy rags to the Lord. There is nothing that we can do. Every good thing that Mother Teresa did. Filthy rags without Jesus. Every time you brushed your teeth when your parents told you to, even though you didn't want to. And every time you washed behind your ears when you are in the bath when you didn't want to. Filthy. No matter what we do, we always fall short. But that's why Jesus says, hey, you having some trouble out there in the field? You having some trouble? Why don't you take up my yoke? Take up my yoke. It's easy. It's not burdensome. I'll do this with you. And Jesus doesn't stand back like the farmer and use us to plow the field. He says, no, no, no. Let me post up right next to you. We're going to do this thing together. Matthew chapter 28. It, it paints this picture so perfectly. Jesus says, you guys all know it. You can quote it. Go into all the world. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe the things which I have commanded you. But we always kind of just stop there. But what does Jesus say? He says, and lo. Or, and here's the best part. I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age. Right? You know how Jesus opens up that portion of the Great Commission? And you would know the verse right before the Great Commission. It says, all power has been given to me. He doesn't say all power has been given to you. Now go do your thing. He says, all power has been given to me. Go do it. And guess what? All power that's been given to me, I'm right there next to you. All powerful. The other gospel writer, Luke, 
he tells us in Acts chapter 1 that in that same dialogue where Jesus says, all power has been given to me, lo, I'm with you always. He also says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Boom. So when we put our faith in Jesus and when we lean on Jesus and we take up Jesus' yoke and say, I cannot do this alone. I need Jesus. Jesus says, okay, here's a little bit of my Holy Spirit too. And then the more we seek after God, the more we work hand in hand with Jesus, the more Jesus says, all right, I'm going to give you more of the Spirit. Power, power, power. And so now, now we are a powerhouse team, Jesus and us. Not that we are going to ever become more powerful than Jesus. And if Jesus were to, if we were to leave Jesus because uh, we're powerful in and of ourselves. Jesus' spirit, if we decide, now I'm done, we don't get to take the spirit with us. It's like having your cake and eating it too, right? You can't do it. We need Jesus, and we need to rely on Jesus. We need to lean on Jesus. And when we do this, it's what Paul begins to say in verse 25. The verse before, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, the mind I myself... um, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He realizes that his flesh is still flesh. And he is in tandem. He's working with Jesus, but he still knows that he's not going to be perfect. He will be someday. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, now I see dimly in the mirror. He, he goes on to say, when I was a child, I thought and I acted as a child. He's talking about his current state. He, he, he can't focus. It's dim. He can maybe see glimpses of hope. He, he's still a child doing the things child. Does. Oh, I'm not supposed to touch the hot stove? Okay. Oh, cookie jar? Oh, fun. Like He says, I still understand that I am in this state of fleshliness, but my mind, oh, my mind knows. My mind hopes for the things that my eyes cannot see. I have faith, that substance of the things hoped for, the evidence of the things not seen. My mind knows it, but man, my body. It's like that song, right? But my body, but my body's telling me, yeah. Right, right, right. Like that, Paul gets it. He's like, I am, I, he goes, but when that which is perfect comes, we will see him face to face. I will throw off the childish things and I will live. I will put off the corruptible for the incorruptible. I will put off the mortal for the immortality. In the life in which we now live, you will still struggle. And you will still fall. But that's why Jesus says the righteous man falls and gets up. How many times? Once? No, he gets up seven times. The disciples ask Jesus, hey, man, when someone sins, when someone like does something against me, how many times can I forgive them before I just like, Jesus says, I tell you this, not seven times, but seven times 70. 490 times for the same sin, the same way in the same day. I don't want to dare you to do this because that would be bad to dare someone to sin from the pulpit. But in and of yourself, I guarantee you, you cannot possibly offend someone the exact same way with the exact same motive 490 stinking times in a 24-hour period because 12 of those most of y'all are asleep and the other 12 
We had 12. That's a lot. Okay. <laughs> Six of those, y'all are asleep. The other 18, that's a lot of sin. I, I'm not a math person, but 18 hours a day four, divided by 490, that's how many times you have to sin an hour? And it's not just any sin. It's the exact same sin with the exact same motive, the exact same intent. You can't do it. And Jesus says, you will not be able to sin enough to escape forgiveness. Get up. Oh, you can't? I'll help you. Let's do it together. Go and sin no more. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. We can't do it. If there was ever a rallying cry... Or, 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 or a group of warriors ready to go into battle. Was there ever a rallying cry more disappointing than, we can't do it! Yeah! We can't do it! No, we sound ridiculous. And that's why Paul says, man, you're a peculiar people. You're, you're a stumbling block to the world because they don't get it. But that's the greatest rallying cry because we... Finish that rallying cry. We can't do it. But Jesus can. Woohoo, yeah. The God who created the universe is so uniquely and relationally desiring something with you individually mm-hmm. that he says, hey, I know you can't do it, but let's do it together. Yeah. Let's do it together. Man, if it was just for one conversation over a McFlurry at McDonald's. I'd say, okay, God, let's do this together. We'll conquer this McFlurry and have a conversation together. Let's do it together. And it is so much, it's the exploding brain how much more God has for us who diligently seek him. For those who will diligently seek the Lord, He has so much more in store for you. Yeah, maybe you don't seek the Lord. Maybe you're just like, man, I want want forgiveness. I need it. I have faith. But I don't know if I'm going to be able to do much more than that. Guess what? You're saved. And God's got your back. And you're going to stand before him someday. And all your works are going to be put on an altar. They're going to be lit on fire. And it's going to burn away everything that isn't of substance. And, and, and we're told that there are going to be those who, when they offer it, everything gets burned. And they are like those who are escaping through the flames. They're saved. They're saved, but they don't have anything to show for it. But for those who diligently seek him, he will reveal the riches of his mercy, the riches of his kingdom. Go look at Ephesians chapter 2. Every spiritual blessing has been made available for those who believe has been made available. Go lay claim to it. You're walking hand in hand with God. Now go lay claim to the things that he has for you. He has adopted you. He has adopted you. Not as like some like, oh, that's a cute kid. I'm going to adopt him and bring him into my house. No, it's a Jewish form of adoption. Which is I'm going to adopt you. And though I do have a firstborn, I'm going to adopt you and give you every single thing that the firstborn has heir to. It's unfathomable. The birthright, the inheritance is now ours. It's our blessed hope. The returning of Jesus and eternity with him. 
So when we begin to look at our lives and we begin to look at the Old Testament, which is a part of Scripture that many people just overlook over the church. we got the New Testament. It's great. Boom. Grace. Jesus. Love. Ah, love it. Good. God killing people. Oh, no. Not good. Like Jesus. Woohoo. Like, no, 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 no. Paul tells us that all these things were written down for our admonition. The law? Yeah, you should read it. The Ten Commandments? Yeah, you should know them. Just because Jesus came and fulfilled the law, does that mean that now we just forget the law? No. We still don't want to kill people. We still don't want to make idols. We still don't want to commit adultery, do all these things. We are now free from the religious repetitiveness of the law. And we are now set free into the law of God, which is the freedom of being a follower of Christ. Paul says all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. We are set free. We can do whatever we want in Christ. I mean, that, that's why Paul says we can do whatever we want, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are of benefit. So to the Christian, he says, wait, I'm set free in Christ. Okay, I can go smoke as much pot as I want. I can go do this. I can go do that. No, 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 no. It's not helpful for us. Yeah, we have freedom, but there's no fruit. So don't do it. And we begin to realize that the law is so much more than the physical, it's spiritual. And then, not out of, uh, I'm trying to attain my salvation, more out of, I love God so much because he saved me in my most depraved state, I'm going to live for him. We no longer fulfill the law out of duty. We fulfill the law out of reverence and love. And that's why Paul says, we're justified by our faith. It's grace. Not of our works. And that's why James says, faith without works is dead. If if God has truly done something in us, and we're truly walking hand in hand with him, I guarantee you Jesus doesn't just, all right, we yoked up. Jesus is like, what do you want to do? I want to chill. I don't want to do anything. Just like, all right, let's chill. Do nothing. Jesus is like, no, man, we we got business to do. I do the will of my father. The will of my father is that none would perish, but that all would come to the saving knowledge. Go into all the world and make disciples. When we realize that we are wicked, sinful, wretched people who in and of ourselves can't do anything, when we realize that, and then we realize that God loves us so much that he sent his son that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, when we truly believe that and say, that is epic, we have a whole new perspective. And now we go and we do. And we overcome sin. And we stumble in sin and we fail, but we get up and we overcome again. And then we overcome double that. And then we fall, but we continue to get up and we overcome, we overcome, we overcome. And when we do that, guys, this whole thing, we could sum up this entire sermon in three words. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, you are saved. Sanctification, you're in the process of becoming perfect, but you will never be perfect in this life. So your life is a process of becoming sanctified, of becoming holy. Last one. It's one that gets left out a lot in theology talks. Glorification. You will be perfect. 
when you receive your heavenly body and you are glorified like the sun. Mm-hmm. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Wow. There will come a day when each and every single one of us will be able to see each other in perfect perfection and we'll see Jesus face to face. Amen? Amen. So I want to close it with this. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin. Praise be to our God and Father. Praise be to our God and Father through Jesus Christ. He's made a way for us. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we praise you that, um, God, you loved us so much that you provided a way for us. God, that you gave us your law. And that, God, your law revealed to us the sinful nature that we have. And, God, you didn't just leave us stranded Sinful, wretched, unclean people. But you met us where we were. And you said, take on my yoke. And you forgive us of all our sins. God, your word tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. That anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, we thank you that your gift of salvation is just that. It's a gift. It is free. It is unmerited. It is from you for us. God, I pray that if there's someone here tonight, one, two, three, four, I don't know, um, but who hasn't said, all right, I want to take that free gift and apply it to their life. God, I pray that even as even as we're fellowshipping and hanging out afterwards and as people begin to make their way out to their cars, God, I pray that you, right then and there, God, you would just fill them so much with your presence Mm -hmm. that they realize, man, I need God. Mm -hmm. And that they surrender their heart to you. No, no, No longer being bound by the law, but being set free in Christ to live in the liberty that comes with being a son and a daughter of Christ. God, thank you for your salvation. Thank you that you don't strand us. Thank you that you're willing to go hand in hand and that you paid it all. Oh, what wretched man am I who will save me? God, thank you for your salvation. May we continually overcome and may we live righteously in this present age. So God, we thank you and we praise you in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Amen.